0: Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, They'll Come.
1: So it's so a $31.3 million contract to deliver 2,000 ventilators starting mid-June. And we're on track to do that. The way we're achieving that is through building a consortium of local manufacturers here to deliver.
0: In today's episode, another of our special COVID-19 podcasts, I'm speaking with Jefferson Harcourt, He's the founder and now executive chairman of Gray Innovation, a Melbourne-based advanced technology and research commercialisation company. Jefferson and his company are helping in the fight against coronavirus working with the federal and Victorian governments and some of the best medical and scientific and engineering minds to help build up Australia's own national medical stockpile of essential weapons needed in the battle against COVID-19. Jefferson Harcourt, thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come.
1: Good morning, Helen. Thanks for having me.
0: Pleasure. Now, what is Gray Innovation? What do you do and from where? So we
1: commercialize new medical devices, cutting edge technology, mainly in medical, but we've got businesses in counterterrorism and environmental technology as well. We are a team of commercial people and engineers. I mean, our history, our legacy was as an engineering company But we realized that there's this tremendous value of high-quality research locked up in the universities that really wasn't going anywhere. So we started to extract this high-value, very expensive research that taxpayers had funded over the years that we could get access to, get that in on a very good deal, and uh, raise capital and go and produce not just the technology, but the, the businesses behind that. So we build these companies up into revenue and either list them or or sell them and go and do it again and again. So we've got eight of those companies in the portfolio at the moment and we're building more all the time.
0: And so you're essentially advanced manufacturing of those great ideas to commercialize them.
1: Well, it's part of it. Yes, advanced manufacturing is part of it, but it's really the whole process from identifying, when you say a good idea, I mean, often this is Research that has run for many years, mm. maybe 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 decades, from a team of people. So we're talking millions and millions of dollars and many years of intellectual property that has been developed within a university or a hospital. We then take that out and start bringing the engineering and the money into it to turn that from a, I guess, a theoretical concept or a very early stage concept into something you can sell. You know, that's, that satisfies all of the regulatory requirements that mm. you know has been developed in a way that it's cost effective as a product. So that's a lot of work, as you can imagine. And then we, of course, have to build a business around that, build the board management, sales distribution, everything that's required to really make that business stand up. And it's great fun.
0: Do you have manufacturing facilities? We don't. And many
1: companies like ours, including Apple, Apple don't have manufacturing facilities. Well, mostly. And and so we have a, a, a more of a contemporary approach. We use very high quality contract manufacturers locally in Australia, as well as throughout you know, throughout the world. And that's very much the the way the world has been set up to operate for many years now. And of course, you know, as, as we're seeing, has some issues associated with it when transport stops working.
0: Yeah, I just want to get a handle on that. So until. Mm. COVID-19, let's talk pre-COVID-19, have you mostly been using advanced manufacturers overseas?
1: Bit of both. We we would probably be 50% local and 50% offshore. Right. Yeah. I mean, we have built our own manufacturing facilities for some of our companies, Grayscan in particular. We actually built an in-house manufacturing capability. And that's really a final assembly environment. And we use local manufacturers to supply subsystems.
0: Yeah. And what's Grayscan? Grayscan
1: is the counterterrorism product. That's a uh, trace explosive detection for airports and critical infrastructure.
0: Fantastic. So that's what you've been making pre-COVID, or that's what you've been organising and commercialising. What are you now contracted with the federal government to help manufacture, to help treat people with COVID-19?
1: We realised early... February, that there was likely to be an issue with a shortage of ventilators. And over the last two decades, we've been working with the healthcare system and had some very good connections there. And so we we started talking to our friends in the system and realised that the uh, ventilator issue was quite likely to be a serious one, not just here, but globally.
0: You mean a shortage of invasive ventilators to intubate COVID-19 patients?
1: Correct, correct because the intubation period for COVID is very long and so that would cause an enormous strain. We put a proposal together, uh, we actually initiated the proposal to the state government, proposing that we manufacture under license a pre-certified design that gets around a big risk for the regulator here. So you know, with an invasive product like a ventilator, it's very difficult to certify a new product quickly. So our strategy was to find something that was already certified, an older design that could be manufactured here with the capabilities that exist. And we pitched it to government and uh, the Victorian government supported it within hours. And that got the whole process started.
0: Supported it in what way?
1: Financially, with the feasibility study.
0: So sorry, they kicked in half a million dollars for that feasibility study?
1: They did, yeah, yeah. Most importantly, we then began the process of calling ventilator companies around the world with the support of the Victorian government and their their office, their offices overseas. We spoke to 10 or 12 ventilator company CEOs, all of the big ones, and found directly that the situation was pretty tough and that it was unlikely that we would uh, get supply. So we heard that directly. We also quizzed these companies on their willingness to license. And through that process, we came across Smith's Medical in the UK who were very supportive of a license and we worked out a way to make that happen. And that's when the federal government also then came to the party with an order for our new ventilator based on that Smith's license.
0: So Smith's Medical in the UK is a highly well-regarded, well-respected, properly accredited maker of ventilators.
1: Correct. That's right. And they're supplying into Australia. The product that we licensed is used in ambulances in Australia today, and they're a global leader in their space.
0: Jefferson, can you explain exactly how much this contract is for with the government and what you have contracted to deliver by when?
1: So it's a $31.3 million contract to deliver 2,000 ventilators starting mid-June. And we're on track to do that. The way we're achieving that is through building a consortium of local manufacturers here to deliver. And we were already talking to our colleagues and friends in the industry about whether they'd be prepared to do this as early back as late February. So as soon as the ball started rolling, very quickly, within days, all of our colleagues and uh, friends in the industry committed to pivot as best they could to support This program.
0: Wow. So you've been pulling together this consortium of of what they're local, as in Victorian, highly skilled manufacturers. And you've done this, what, in less than two months, really. And you're going to deliver 2,000 new invasive ventilator machines by July.
1: Yes, that's right. Raise the money, get the license, build the consortium, and deliver. No pressure. But everything's tracking well. I mean, look, the capability here, and it's not just Victorian. The majority of the people are, the partners are Victorian, but there are certainly very good companies from other states as well.
0: Can you just give us a a flavour of who are some of those who've joined you, committed to join you to make these machines?
1: Sure. Uh, We've got, say, Planet Innovation here in Melbourne, who are a very good designer and producer of medical devices. Robert Bosch, developing all the test systems. We are not just manufacturing the ventilator. We have to manufacture all of the test equipment to qualify the subsystems and the final product as well. So there's more work than just the ventilator mm. to, to do here. Miranda, who uh, make very, very sophisticated uh, aircraft and fighter jet technology, wow. are helping us. Uh, we've got Hosico, plastic injection molding, Romar up in Sydney, who produce medical grade plastic injection molding parts. A number of companies. They're all precision engineering businesses. For them to produce these parts is not a stretch. You know, we're not asking anyone to do something outside of their capability. In fact, this is relatively low tech for many of these businesses compared to what they do as a day job.
0: Yeah, but they are all pivoting. They are all committed to helping Australia with this national medical stockpile.
1: This demonstrates a fantastic feature of our culture where, where people are really prepared to work together, drop everything to come and do something for a better cause, you know, and manufacturing in Australia has been under stress. And I think it's wonderful. When any system is under stress, to ask it to cooperate is a tough ask. That's not it's not natural when people are fighting for survival to, to cooperate. And uh, it just shows that it's not the case here. Perhaps there are many more businesses doing very well than we realized that are prepared to work together. And Mm. there's been a wonderful collegial response here. People have been working very long days, weekends, to make this happen
0: mm, it's extraordinary and in a way uh, I mean there's been a little bit of publicity about your consortium contract with the with the feds but it's really flown under the radar I mean you're another industry I guess another group of people who are really fighting to help the whole community I mean heroes in in manufacturing
1: it's interesting you say that I guess it's not something typically we've recognized in Australia you know we tend to turn the tap on and the water flows out and that's as far as anyone thinks about these things and then goes back and watches Married at first sight.
0: Mm.
1: Maybe this could be the start of a, a greater awareness.
0: Yeah, well, Federal Industry Minister Karen Andrews, she said, you know, this, and I'm quoting her, shows the incredible collaborative spirit that's been on display. Many of these companies which are normally in competition are working together. I mean, why do you think that's happened? I think
1: our greatest competition is not other companies in our field, our greatest competition is the competition for the investment dollar. Mm. I'm in more competition with the property market than anything else.
0: Wow, and that's depressing in itself, isn't it? It is. so when when you say that, what do you mean? Just explain to listeners what you mean.
1: We're always raising capital for our ventures, and fortunately we've been successful in doing that by finding a small cohort of high net and family offices who have a clear vision for the future which is one of sophistication you know they want to see an environment for their grandkids where australia is producing high quality sophisticated businesses and technology but for most people it's what's the quickest return now and property is deemed as very safe mining cost us uh, many years it was very difficult to raise money when the mining booms were on and you also have a situation where we have a very short-term focus on listed companies. A lot of technology companies are forced to list. A lot of the wrong people make money out of that process. And quite frankly, many retail investors are left mm. you know, holding the can, quite frankly. And you know, we have this rhetoric that a technology investment is just a website driving children into debt. You know, the, the, the companies that are creating new debt instruments for kids who wouldn't normally be able to have a credit card... I have a share price through the roof mm. when a company trying to develop a medical device that would save lives is just not, not investable mm. compared to that. So that is our competition, really. It's this um, awareness of how you invest in technology and myths about levels of risk, a misunderstanding of the risk profile of of technology investment. A lack of leadership, really, as well, and perhaps out of this exercise, our industry should make some more noise. And you know, I think there's plenty of we're certainly having to do that. But that's really the the, the competition. It's for the investor dollar. Mm.
0: Back to the particular ventilators and the designs. So Smith's Medical in the UK has licensed you to make their machines. So does that mean you don't have to do any R&D or do you have to still do some rapid R&D or you can jump that part of this process?
1: Yes, so we jump that part of the process and that's critical to satisfying the regulator that we are reproducing verbatim an existing proven design; otherwise, we'd be running clinical trials and so on, and we would be uh, it would take years yeah. to do
0: this. So, when do you and your part, your consortium partners, plan to begin manufacturing these ventilators?
1: Well, we're manufacturing now. The subsystems are already in production. We had, as they say, swarf on the floor. Uh, so, cutting of parts within a week of signing the license
0: yeah so how do these smaller manufacturing facilities how are they coping and adapting? How do they uh, scale up or, or change their their manufacturing facilities?
1: Well many of them aren't small you know they're, they're of decent size right And in order to be in business in Australia as a manufacturer you're inherently adaptable. <laughs> you just wouldn't have survived otherwise. One business was a medical implant manufacturer. Now their market has dried up with COVID right. because their patients aren't getting the knee surgery and other things. So, so this was perfect timing for them. They could retain uh, a large part of their workforce and now use the same people and the same machines to produce the parts we require. And that's really been one of the best things about it is that this uh, purchase order has helped keep people employed. It's propped up, not just the manufacturers, but we've, we've kept two restaurants alive. You know, our friends, we see normally over over the course of a, a week or a month would not be there after this pandemic if it wasn't for this order and the fact that we're having them feed our staff the companies who are pivoting uh, i think are doing so well within their comfort zone they already have the space and scale i mean these are these are sophisticated companies with real scale uh, i think they're very impressive to look at
0: With regards to Grey Innovation and your company, with the COVID-19 crisis, have you seen massive change? Have you had to readapt, be flexible, pivot?
1: Yes, that, that's what this order was. This whole exercise was a anticipation of some pivot that would have to happen.
0: And how has it changed your organisation? Well,
1: I mean, for us, this order has been... Very positive for our organization. But we've had to slow down and hibernate some of our businesses. Mm. Fortunately, we've been able to pick key staff and move them back into the ventilator program. Others we've had to just go on a reduced rate. Fortunately, none of our businesses have been affected drastically by this pandemic. Certainly, the process, the timing, it's affected capital raises, it's affected the commercialization journey. And it has meant that staff have been sent home, but we've been able to pick most of them back up and re and use them back on the ventilator program. So we've been very fortunate that we can operate as a group rather than as an individual company. But we're in a unique position there. I, I look out my window down onto Bridge Road in Richmond and, you know, it's quiet. And I look at the places where we would normally go for lunch and I just don't know if they'll ever open again. Mm. You know, I so it's certainly lost, not lost on us, I should say, that uh, you know, it's going to be a different environment when we come out of this.
0: Yeah.
1: So at a most practical level, we uh, work from home as much as we can. We've got you know, all sorts of hygiene procedures in the office and things we wouldn't normally have done. We have had to uh, put security on to keep people out who shouldn't be in the building. Uh, we're relying on Zoom and other tools a lot more than we used to, uh, but that's working quite well. Uh, most of our partners i have to say uh, are not too affected by the pandemic mm-hmm. apart from the practical aspects of having staff working remotely but everyone seems to be in our industry moving on and I, I i suspect that is because the nature of the business we do is spread across very long time frames you know we're working on multi year contracts and, and projects so uh, this doesn't affect us as hard as it would many other businesses but i certainly you know, really feel for the for the restaurant industry and hospitality mm. industry. We've hired a few people in here who uh, were from that industry who would have been out of work and sitting at home. We can only take a few, but we have. Yeah. We're very grateful that it hasn't cut across us this time. But, you know, who knows when it happens again, and I think we're in for a series of these things, it may have a bigger impact. When we go back to the market um, to raise capital, I think then we'll
0: see a difference. And what will that difference be or you're not sure what it will be yet?
1: No, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, Certainly the public markets have been really knocked around. Mm. People may be pulling their money out of public markets. and Maybe that investment in the private, you know, unlisted space uh, is more desirable. That would be good for us. Maybe they're bargain hunting and they'll keep it all and uh, reinvest it when they think they're at the market's at its, uh, at its bottom. I, I don't know. So mm. I think that's where we will see it the most.
0: We started out obviously talking about, you know, highly skilled, highly engineered, advanced manufacturing and in this country and it's been knocked around. Do you think Australia is too reliant on global supply chains, i.e. reliance on China manufacturing or German raw materials and really this crisis and our shortage of some of these essential medical items these tools we need is the jolt that we need to ensure advanced sophisticated manufacturing either stays here or reignites here
1: yes i think this has been a good wake up call we are only 2% of the global gdp so we're right down at the bottom of the list when it comes to the picking order for supply so we do need to be more self reliant and this exercise has shown us that very clearly it's not just the Advanced manufacturing—it's the whole ecosystem of high-value technology creation. You know, from the from the R&D, the manufacture, the investment, and the willingness to buy. You know, the willingness to purchase from government. And I think government have got that message very clearly—that they have a key role to play here in purchasing. And if they simply mandate that a certain percentage of equipment must be of home origin, the industry will very quickly follow and support that, and that will create. A whole new ecosystem. it really saddens me to see large government technology projects that just go offshore again and again and again.
0: Mm.
1: Mikey was a classic example of a very large project that could have been easily done here. And you know that was a very expensive exercise for the taxpayer. Not a cent of value really was created for the technology industry here on shore. It should not have happened like that. Mikey was a complete upgrade to the Victorian or the Melbourne public transport system in terms of ticketing. Uh, it was a touch-on, touch-off ticketing yep. system, very similar to systems that have been rolled out around the world for decades. Yeah. This system was outsourced to you know, foreign partners. The ball was dropped. It was a very expensive exercise, billions and billions of dollars, and I think you know, significant overruns. And sadly, there are, there are many companies in Victoria who could have worked together And delivered that technology and supported it. And it would have not just kept the taxpayer dollars in the state, but it would have built a number of new companies, any one of whom may have gone on to be the next ResMed or Cochlear or or whatever. We we keep missing those opportunities. The discussions I've had with government, very much uh, the, the message has been received loud and clear that we need to have more local Production, especially for critical equipment. And so steps are happening right now. You know, I'm involved in some work with the Victorian government around building groups to start to look at what we need to produce here and how to do it. Mm. So I, I'm really very optimistic that this won't just be left to the side, even though we've handled it very well.
0: Take us back. How did you start Grey Innovation? When did it come about?
1: So I was at Swinburne University. In Swinburne, you spend one year in industry, and I was fortunate enough to go out to Bosch, Australia. That was 1996, and I was there for a year. And it was during that year watching what Bosch did, which was to design and manufacture very high quality and very high volume of body computer systems for the global automotive industry. We would actually in Clayton manufacture products that would go on shipping containers back to to Europe, you know, to be assembled in vehicles. And it was a real privilege to see everything vertically integrated all in the one under the one roof. You know, I was very fortunate. And that really got me thinking that that's the sort of thing I want to do, but I, it was not lost on me that at Bosch they were performing miracles and really not recognized. You know, I could see that It was already back then I could see the automotive industry was getting commoditized. Money was always tight. I thought, I want to do what they do, but I don't want to do it for automotive and scrounge every cent. I want to do it for medical. I figured if you're ever going to make any money as an engineer, you've got to do something in medical. So that's what I figured back then. So I started Gray straight after university and got myself a medical contract down at the Epworth Hospital.
0: Wow. And can you remember the feeling of getting that, Winning that first project when you started out your own company?
1: Well, I couldn't believe it because I was still on SWATVAC. So, still studying? I, still, I had to tell the doctor <laughs> I, we were moving offices because uh, I'll get him my new business cards when, it, when they come back from the printer. You know, it was fairly. Really, I, I ran down and, and uh, got the business cards printed the next day and I pretty much made up the name on the spot in the middle of getting the contract. So, it was very. Uh, very touchy guy. I, I later told him that. We had a bit of a laugh about it.
0: Yeah. And what was that first contract for?
1: It was a driver fatigue system. The business... Is called OptAlert, and that technology is sold around the world in uh, mining trucks and other vehicles to help keep drivers alive so they don't fall asleep behind the wheel.
0: Wow! What was your funding source back in the beginning? Did you borrow from banks? Did you use your own money? Although you said you just straight out of uni, did you have a backer? Did you ask mum and dad?
1: I borrowed ten thousand bucks off my father, and the rest of it was funded through clients. So for the first fifteen years. We ran as a consultancy, so it was just a fee-for-service business and that's how we funded it. And it was only in the last five years that we started to move to building our own companies and raising our own capital directly.
0: Did you have a business plan thoroughly worked out back then? I think I did one
1: to satisfy my father so I could get the ten grand, (laughs) but not really.
0: (laughs) So that means maybe you didn't stick to that plan or you changed it as you went.
1: Oh you must I mean how much do you learn as you go you have to learn almost everything as you go with this business
0: Yeah but Jefferson was it nonetheless a huge leap to start your own business I mean you know you could have gone and worked for a big player although you'd had that opportunity still as a student to work for Bosch why didn't you think oh I could have a great career at Bosch Yeah I think
1: I made one good call that I had nothing to lose and it was and I figured if I didn't do it then I'd wind up with a credit card, a mortgage, and it would just you know it'd be very hard to do it you know a year or two out, so I figured I'd go for it when I had nothing to lose, see how it worked, and if it didn't work, then I'd go and work for the corporates. The other reason was that you know I was an inner city guy I was living on St. Kilda Road, all the engineering back then was out in the you know out of suburbs, and that didn't work for me, so I was really just driven from a very emotional place really to build a business around the sort of life I wanted to live rather than being stuck out, you know, nine to five out in the, in the outer suburbs. Mm. Now Things have changed a lot since then, but yeah.
0: How important has it been for you and, and was it even in the early days to collaborate with the highly skilled people and their ideas in universities and hospitals?
1: Oh, it's essential, but really the, the highly skilled people were in industry and that's the bit that's missed. I mean, the, the skill in industry is phenomenal. They're the practitioners, and I could not have started Gray if it wasn't for that year at Bosch. And I was then fortunate enough to, as part of the contracting consulting early days of Gray, I would myself contract out as well. So I would spend time back at Bosch, uh, over to Hewlett-Packard, being around these uh, incredible companies and businesses in the real world doing things. So I learned from industry. In one of my first jobs at Hewlett Packard, now I'm still running gray at this point, but I'm doing a few, maybe 50% of my time on contract at Hewlett Packard. I was sent over to Singapore to help move production facilities from Indonesia up to China. You know, So I'm sitting there on a hydrofoil going over the ocean out of Singapore to Batam to have a look at some factories that I was going to move to. China, you know what a what a job, and it was great fun. Amazing. So I think you know we we overplay, in my view, the role of universities in the system, and underplay the value of industry. You, if you look at Germany, Germany has, I think, got the balance far more sensible. Germany has a better ratio, in my view, of the balance between academia and industry, and academia is there to support the needs of industry with some blue sky, but it's not all blue sky, and it's actually not allowed for academics to spend more than I think it's six or seven years in academia without spending time in industry because the government understands that without that industry experience, the uh, academic becomes too out of the real world.
0: If we go back even further, what was your life like growing up? Did you come from an entrepreneurial family? Were your folks in business or engineering? Were they building companies?
1: No, my my father was the CEO of an insurance company, so probably about as risk adverse as you could get, I think. (laughs) So, no, I can't say
0: that. And your mum?
1: No, she was busy looking after us. So, no, I think when I said I'm going to go and work for myself, they were all a bit puzzled, but... Yeah, you know, I mean, these days it's it's normal. But twenty, well, twenty five years ago, uh, startups weren't really a thing, were they? Back mm. then, I remember there was a, someone came in to our university from the Institute of Engineers and spoke to us about careers, and I put my hand up and said I was thinking about starting my own business, and he looked at me horrified and said, "Well, you have to get some experience first. You can't, you cannot just go straight from university to starting your own business." And of course, that made a lot of sense back then, but I didn't listen.
0: But your background then even, you know, as you were studying, was more in engineering and tech than in business, wasn't it? So where did this risk-taking, this backing yourself come from?
1: Oh, uh, look, yeah, there are more billionaires on the planet who did engineering as their primary degree than anyone else. Hmm. Uh, you look back at Brunel, you know, uh, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, captain of industry, tunnelled under the Thames, built half of the uh, – Great Western Railway in the UK, you know, really a man of his time as an engineer. But, you know, he was in Parliament lobbying to change legislation, raising capital, wearing a top hat and looking fantastic. I mean, we in this country have this concept that if you are technical, you are therefore not Mm. something else. But that flies in the face of all the facts Elon Musk, jobs. I mean, Mm. engineers or people who have studied it. Oh, by the way, there are more CEOs of listed companies who did engineering mm-hmm. as their primary degree as well. It's just something you study. It doesn't define you for life. It just means that your brain works. You probably can't dance. Um, <laughs> and if you, you know, if you, if you're lucky and your left and right brains talk together, then you, you're actually a pretty useful person. Yeah. And You can't fake an engineering degree. It's sort of a hard baked intelligence test. Exactly. You know, I'd always say it's just something you study. It's not like you you're not stuck for life in a in a corduroy pants with a funny jumper just because you studied something for four
0: years. (laughs) I can't see you, but I'm imagining you are not currently wearing corduroy pants and a cardigan. They'll come back. They'll come back. I'm hanging in there. All right. Now, when that dream or that idea hit you about starting your own business around engineering and technology, was it always a big dream, a big vision, or was it a smaller kind of vision? So
1: it was always a big vision at the time. So when I was a kid, I remember one of the most amazing things I saw was a picture of some other kids who had in their bedroom, three computers, three computers. And I remember looking at that thinking one day I would love three computers in my bedroom. You know, that was a big dream. And it, I still stand in my office sometimes at night where I've probably got 300 computers. And I look at that and I said, if you had a, <laughs> if you had a told yourself that back then, mate, you never would have believed it in a million years. So I think you've always got to have big dreams. And I'm just happy to say that so far, touch wood, they, when things do evolve, they tend to, when you stop and finally have the time to have a breath and take a look, it's actually bigger than you dreamt. But then you keep going and you want an even bigger one.
0: I'm asking a lot of people this, and, and just perhaps keep your answers short if you can. Have you had mentors either in those early years of development or over the years since sounding boards? Have you had investment bankers, management consultants advising you?
1: Not officially. I've had a few mentors They probably didn't realise it at the time.
0: How much have you been willing to risk? Did you feel you bet a lot to back yourself?
1: Oh, I bet everything. And I still would uh, you have to define yourself through your business if you're doing this so yeah you know, it it was me and I was it and uh I would risk everything and have
0: what sort of growth percentage growth are you doing these days? would you still are you a small business a medium business
1: We're a medium business the Growth is through, you know, it's it's good growth. It's about 150% CAGR because of the value of our portfolio or the growth of our portfolio companies.
0: What's 150% CAGR? Combined annual
1: growth rate. So that's the the value of our portfolio companies year on year.
0: That's a a cumulative growth rate, is it? Yeah, that's right, yeah. And that's over, what, 22 years or something? No, that's just
1: just the last five years since we stopped consulting. So we've really had two very different phases of our business. The first 15 years, helping other people with their products and helping them build their business. And uh, we've had some good success for them over those years. We would just get paid the fees. Five years ago, we moved to building our own businesses with our own investment and building the value for ourselves and our investors and not being available for hire anymore. And that that was a big pivot for us. But we we had to do the time and learn our stripes in the consulting days in order to be able to do that.
0: What's the biggest thing you reckon you've learned on this journey to build your business? There are people who build
1: and there are people who take. And I used to think that the people who took were bad people until I realized they. what else do you do if you can't build? So we've learned to build two things. Now we build what we're building and we build a big fence around it as well to protect it. And that lesson took me a while to learn.
0: So you do have a moat around you to protect your products, your business?
1: The businesses we build, absolutely. I mean, these are high-value businesses. Yeah, uh,
0: so what is that moat? How do you how do you protect them, briefly?
1: It's through people, really. You need to hire the right people to manage them, to take control. Uh, once we've finished incubating them, you want to make sure you have the right board and an executive team. Who continue the culture that got that business off the ground and grow it in a constructive way. Over the years, we've had many different experiences as we spin businesses out, hire people from the corporate world who look good on paper or hire people through our network. And uh, we, you know, we're constantly testing and assessing what works the best. It's easy to make things. Well, for us, we make things look a bit too easy, I think. And uh, so as we start to hand businesses over, we have to be very careful that they are in the right hands. And that, that all comes down to people. And that's the, you know, that that is everything in this business.
0: What advice would you give to someone young coming out of university who would love to try and do what you've done?
1: Go for it. Go for it early. Network. Join the industry groups. Build your network as fast as you can. And don't forget, you don't know anyone who's starved to death trying. It's It's worth giving it a go. Give it a go young.
0: What are you obsessed about at the moment?
1: I'm looking forward to my first plane trip. I'm really missing it. <laughs> I travel a lot. It's going to be a, a ride and I can't wait. So that's what I'm looking forward to.
0: How much of your success with grey innovation is due to your drive, your innate skills, your expertise, your intelligence, and how much is due to luck?
1: Oh, look, I think luck, uh, I'm not a believer in luck. I'm certainly a believer in probability. So you've got to get out there and, and say so that the more often you're out there, the luckier you get. But you've got to be out there a lot. And and I am. And in terms of how much is about what I do, my job is to find people better than me for the areas that we need them for. So you know the last thing I want to do is be the smartest person in the room. If I walk into a room and I've got the answers, I walk out very frustrated and and concerned. So you know in the early days when Grey was me, It was about me but very quickly it has to become about the people here my job is just to make sure we get the right people and they are well supported
0: jefferson harcourt of gray innovation the founder and now executive chairman thanks so much for joining us on build it they'll come my pleasure thanks for having me today I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter, at Helen underscore Dally. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks, and I'd love you to give it a star rating to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe, as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss, with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into an empire.